One of the problems in going into this pandemic is that, you know, there are only so many vaccines and they're only made in a few places and um, there's not much capacity to surge. We need to fix that because this is not going to be the last pandemic. Since our last podcast on the global search for a COVID-19 vaccine featuring Dr. Chris Byrer, multiple vaccine candidates representing countries and private corporations around the world have begun worldwide distribution in an effort to finally end the COVID-19 pandemic. However, this distribution has been heavily criticized for its unevenness, as higher-income countries have secured earlier access to massive amounts of vaccine relative to lower- and middle-income countries. In tandem, a manufacturing crisis has arisen in vaccine production, as demand has far exceeded supply, while vaccine hesitancy and misinformation have continued to surge online. Many have referred to the underlying cause of this vaccine inequity as vaccine nationalism, where countries have prioritized widespread distribution of vaccine to their own citizenry above global distribution. In a pandemic that ignores borders and nationalities, many see this as a high-risk situation for the rise of more COVID-19 variants. Here to discuss with us is Jennifer Nuzzo. Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and a senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Nuzzo is also lead epidemiologist for the Johns Hopkins COVID-19 Testing Insights Initiative at the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. Together with colleagues from the Nuclear Threat Initiative and the Economist Intelligence Unit, she co-leads the development of the first ever Global Health Security Index, which benchmarks 195 countries' public health and healthcare capacities, their commitment to global health security financing, and their individual risk environments. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So just to kick us off, do you think you could give us a quick summary of what global vaccine distribution currently looks like? You know, is it a mostly multilateral effort or is it individual countries negotiating with private actors that produce and distribute the vaccines? Yeah, it's really all of the above. Um, You know, it's uh, countries negotiating with companies, countries um, negotiating on a bilateral or multilateral basis, um, and uh, countries also negotiating with uh, collective mechanisms like COVAX. And recently, we've been reading a lot of stories about vaccine inequity in particular, especially given the distribution. So could you just comment on the divide between high income and lower middle income countries in accessing the vaccines? Yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary divide um, that falls um, completely along country income lines. So um, the majority, I would say, the, of the countries that have access to vaccines and are using vaccines, um, it really skews towards the higher income countries, whereas um, the percentage of low uh, income countries that have begun to vaccinate their populations, um, and in some cases even have access to vaccines, um, is much, much lower. And so could you give us some of the underlying reasons behind that, especially in terms of how low-income countries have struggled with distributing, especially to essential and elderly populations? Yeah, well, I mean, it's partially about who has secured um, arrangements um, to receive vaccine. And, you know, the United States uh, was very aggressive in doing that and, you know, um, has um, quite a a large supply of, of vaccines um, that it's using for broadly in its population. Um, other countries just you know, haven't been able to even gain access to vaccines. Um, the COVAX um, uh, facility is a really interesting approach where countries either donate vaccines or they donate money or both. Um, 
that can be kind of uh, put into a pool um, that will be used um, to ensure that, um, you know, the, the goal being that all countries have access to, um, you know, at least some amount of vaccine um, with the hopes that they could use that for their, their most vulnerable um, populations. Um, and it's, I think, I think it's a really promising approach and it's a really important development in this pandemic that I hope um, can be built out further uh, for future events. But um, I think it's really struggled by the fact that um, there's just insufficient vaccine quantities available to allocate. Um, countries like, say, the U.S., for instance, while we have agreed to um, donate money to COVAX, which you know theoretically could be used to purchase vaccines, we haven't actually donated vaccines. And that's an important um, distinction because um, COVAX can use the money to buy vaccines provided there are vaccine doses to buy. And right now, it's really a race between countries who are locking up um, vaccine supplies um, for the protection of their own people, which really limits the amount that's available for collective distribution. So you kind of alluded to this earlier in one of your responses, but could you please give us a definition for vaccine nationalism? Yeah, so vaccine nationalism um, is really, uh, the idea of underpinning it is that countries are vaccinating for the pure benefit of their own populations um, and doing so at odds with um, the collective benefits of the globe. Um, so, you know, many people have um, not unfairly, I think, um, you know, expressed concerns about the United States that we have so many vaccines that we are just offering um, broadly to our population and, and promising will be um, broadly available to, you know, all the adults in our population. Um, whereas, you know, in other countries, um, very vulnerable people have not been able to be vaccinated. And so, um, I think the if vaccine nationalism is you look inward and with only the goal of protecting your own people, um, you know the, the the converse of that is that you look globally with the goal of um, protecting people who are most at risk of severe outcomes, um, protecting those people who are most likely to be exposed, like healthcare workers who um, you know around the globe treat patients every day and do so at you know their own personal risk um, without the protection of of vaccine. Um, and that really, uh, you know, I think if you're concerned uh, with ending the pandemic, um, it uh, creates um, a very strong um, imperative to ensure that there is not a huge discrepancy in which countries can access vaccines. You know, the, the pandemic will not be something that we no longer worry about so long as COVID is, is threatening any country on this planet. And where do you think the balance lies for countries to act ethically, both on the domestic and the international stages? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough question. And I can understand, you know, if you're elected to be the president of a country, your uh, priority is to the people who elected you. You know, your responsibility is to your citizens. Um, so I can understand the pressure that political leaders are under to make sure their population is vaccinated before they can even think about sending vaccines to other countries. I can imagine the, the political pressures uh, that make it very hard to do that. Um, that said, if our goal is to return to normalcy, to restore our economy, um, and to stop worrying about this virus, um, we will have to ensure that other countries are protected. So while I think you can make a fair argument, a very pragmatic argument about the benefits to saying, okay, maybe United States doesn't need to vaccinate all of its population. You know, maybe we should continue to prioritize the people who are most at risk of death, but maybe consider giving some portion of our vaccines to other countries. I think that's a reasonable argument to make. 
um, I'm not sure the politics will ever be surmounted. So um, there have been alternative proposals that have been floated, which is then perhaps if we are unable to share a fraction of the vaccines that we have, can we do more to allow other countries to make the vaccines so that we increase the total supply? And that, of course, gets into intellectual property issues and negotiations with the companies that are um, making these vaccines. Um, but, you know, I think there have been some developments on that front where um, now there's been an agreement where um, some um, uh, places in, in India, I believe, will be uh, soon manufacturing um, some of the, the Johnson & Johnson's vaccine, which should um, increase the supply. So we need more efforts like that, uh, more agreements made to um, allow more places to make vaccines so we can get more vaccines more quickly. You brought up a little earlier today about one major vaccine distribution front, and that is the program known as COVAX. Do you see COVAX as an effective enough answer to this issue we see in vaccine nationalism and the resultant vaccine inequity? I think of it, and pardon myself for using an epidemiologic term, but I think of COVAX as necessary but not sufficient. I actually think it is a really uh, innovative approach, and I am glad to see how much progress it's made, um, but we still have a discrepancy and we need to, to bridge it. Um, but nonetheless, I think it does meaningfully move the ball forward in terms of um, pursuing global approaches. I mean, since the start of this pandemic, it has unfortunately been pretty much every country for itself. And the fact that um, we have uh, the kind of participation in COVAX that we do now, I think is, is something that we should acknowledge as an important success. Um, but we need to do more just because there isn't enough vaccine for many countries. And right now, uh, you know, the United States, the United Kingdom, Israel, uh, countries that have really been aggressive in vaccinating their populations, they are looking much, much different in terms of their case numbers than, uh, say, Europe, which has been um, comparatively slow. Um, so, you know, I think we have to do more um, to increase the supply of vaccines that can be allocated through, um, you know, uh, uh, agreements like COVAX. And in terms of this effort to fill in the gaps that COVAX doesn't fulfill, are multilateral organizations like COVAX and like the World Health Organization enough? Or are we mostly relying on wealthy countries' goodwill in the situation? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question. Um, you know, I think we need all. I mean, we need we need these multilateral um, institutions to provide leadership and a framework and, and to, um, you know, the, the operational efforts um, we also do need wealthy countries. We need negotiations with companies. Um, you know, we, we absolutely need um, the, the, the private sector to, to be involved in these efforts. You know, um, so we, we need everybody, basically. Um, and, you know, private sector companies, you know, they're multinational. So um, they uh, are, I think, an important uh multilateral organization in and of themselves. Um, and uh, they're, they're feeling the effects of this um, in the sense that, uh, you know, um, news as of late is that, you know, Europe may um, be limiting the exports of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which, you know, is going to really put a pinch on the availability of um, vaccines in other countries. So, um, you know, the, the private 
companies have a role to play in these negotiations and in um, developing a solution to ensure that we don't have a shortage of vaccines. And if any good can come out of this pandemic, I do hope that it is a more distributed manufacturing approach to vaccines and a more distributed vaccine development. One of the problems in going into this pandemic is that you know there are only so many vaccines and they're only made in a few places and um, there's not much capacity to surge. We need to fix that because this is not going to be the last pandemic. It's um, definitely not going to be the last epidemic that we deal with. There are going to be many more events for which having the ability to rapidly develop and mass produce uh, vaccines to meet the needs of those situations, it's, it's going to be urgent. So we need to figure out better models for that. So now that the United States is uh, a presence in COVAX, what impact will it have moving forward if it chooses to donate its vaccine supply? And what reasons might they have to choose not to? Yeah, so I'm really glad to see the United States once again participating in these multilateral um, agreements and um, organizations. I would like to see the United States do more than um, donate money, although money is certainly important. I do think the United States involvement is um, important from a normative perspective um, to encourage other countries to participate and to show that, you know, the, the highest income countries um, are investing in these efforts. So that I think is an important development, but clearly we need to do more. And I think um, some of the negotiations with countries, uh, companies rather, to um, ensure that we can have more vaccines made to meet the, the demand um, will be really critical. And I think that is in a very important role for the United States to play. I think the United States has important leverage in um, making that happen. And, and that's really where I see uh, the biggest contributions that we can make. Now, obviously, donating vaccines, I think, is also important from a normative standpoint. So far, the United States has not um, chosen to do that. There has been discussion of, of possibly giving vaccines to Canada and Mexico. My understanding is that's not a donation so much as a loan, um, which I don't fully understand that. But um, you know, it's a start, but again, I think there is also a moral imperative, a normative imperative to the donation of vaccines, but I understand the difficult politics of doing that um, until more Americans are vaccinated. So in my mind, the way to meet the global need, given the very, you know, uh, toxic politics of the moment, is to ensure that more vaccines are made, period, so that we have more to allocate. So from a very different perspective, we have three countries that are notably missing as partner countries in the COVAX program, India, Russia, and Turkey. Do you think the distribution at this global scale can still work without the participation of these three countries? I think it's working. Um, uh, but, you know, the ideal is that we would have all countries participating. Um, Russia is clearly involved in vaccination, and it's clearly involved in, in sharing uh, vaccines. Um, it is unfortunate that it is happening um, on a bilateral basis and not through this, this global mechanism. I, in general, think the world would uh, do much better in, in ending this pandemic um, if we were collectively as opposed to um, these kind of one or two offs um, uh, agreements. 
So <laughs> that's, I think that's really uh, what it comes down to. Uh, you know, it would be quite helpful if countries uh, were participating um, as opposed to just, um, you know, making these bilateral agreements that are often made according to political priorities, uh, working with allies, um, et cetera. But, you know, the United States is, is pursuing other models too um, with this um, uh, negotiation um, to produce, uh, have J&J &J vaccine produced um, in India for distribution um, in, throughout Southeast Asia. Um, there are, I'm sure, uh, very strong political motivations behind those efforts in addition to, you know, they will be beneficial for, for health, but they are not free of politics and making the decision to allocate vaccines in that region. So speaking of J&J &J and speaking of Russia, of course, um, we have a lot of vaccines currently being distributed around the world. Could you just run us through some of the major players that have been distributed so far? So um, in terms of vaccines, we have about 10 different vaccines or so uh, being used, um, developed by different countries. Some of them you've probably heard about in the news, the, some of the big, bigger pharmaceutical companies, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca. Um, but then there are um, vaccines being developed by other countries, like such as China and Russia, and um, they're, they're being used throughout the world. I think there's a interesting... Um, uh, distribution of each of those vaccines um, that, you know, I think line up sort of quite um, conveniently with um, political priorities of, of each of the countries that, that produce them. Um, but uh, anyway, it, it, the vaccine endeavor um, is truly a, a global one in the sense that we have uh, vaccines being produced in multiple parts of the world that are being used in multiple parts of the world. So the last time we talked about vaccines on this podcast was with your colleague, also from the School of Public Health, Chris Byrer. Um, and that was when Sputnik V had just been approved by the Russian government. It was super controversial at the time because it was released without adequate phase three testing. Since then, would you say that Sputnik V has gained any credibility on the global stage? Yeah, I mean, they have um, published data now, which is uh, quite helpful, um, you know, that, that shows um, the, the efficacy of of the data and you know i think it's it's um so th i think that has that has helped it is always important i think to put uh these data into the peer-reviewed literature and um they did that uh which is is useful and then in terms of controversial vaccines we also have the vaccine manufactured by the chinese enterprise sinovac and it has its own share of controversy due to a lack of data and a lack of transparency into its manufacturing practices has this vaccine been widely distributed outside of China, and how have recipient countries responded to concerns raised around it? Yes, I mean, it has been um, distributed in a number of other countries, and, um, you know, there isn't a lot of information um, to suggest one thing or another. I mean, I, I, it seems to be being used without incident, um, which is good news, because the more players there are available, the better. Um, that said, I think we would benefit greatly from having more transparency and more data about this vaccine so that we could know um, how broadly it, it should be used. And despite their controversy, we know that both of these vaccines have been used quite extensively in lower income countries. Would you say that it's an ethical decision for governments to purchase vaccines with less evidence backing them? Yes, I mean, of course, uh, you know, you don't want to create a situation where there's even the perception that the 
quote, bad vaccines, and I'm not trying to imply that this is a bad vaccine, but you can imagine that data for which, uh, vaccines for which there are fewer data available and fewer, less just overall confidence in the vaccine as a result of the lack of transparency. Uh, you, you know, if you have a vaccine that, that is like that, um, you don't want to create a situation in which it's perceived that the kind of bad vaccines are going to the, say, poor countries. Um, that said, I think any leader of any country is always having to balance um, concerns about the vaccines that they're using with very, very real and known concerns about the virus. And so, um, you know, if you have a situation where um, you have a raging epidemic, I think the calculus becomes a lot different than if you are like a New Zealand or an Australia that has largely kept the virus at bay. We know that many Americans have been quite hesitant to receive the vaccine. What are the trends of vaccine hesitancy around the world, and is it more pronounced in some communities versus others? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a changing one. Um, in that, you know, even polls conducted in the United States suggests um, increasing levels of comfort with vaccines, which you know sort of makes sense. I mean, you know, often we do these polls and we ask people, you know, would you take this theoretical vaccine about which you know nothing? And you know, it shouldn't be so surprising that a lot of people might say no um, to that question. But as people um, continue to see the vaccines be used and they start knowing people who get it and talking about their experience, I mean, I think you can expect that hesitancy can increase. That said, there are other developments happening. So um, for instance, this week, there's a lot of talk about AstraZeneca. Last week, the conversation with AstraZeneca was about um, the uh, discovery of, or the, the observation of um, some potential adverse events that may have been associated with the vaccine. And as a result, a number of countries in Europe paused the use of the vaccine. Now, it was kind of a tough call, I think, um, and possibly an overreaction because the number of events was really quite small given the total number of people who had been vaccinated. Um, but nonetheless, when these events happen, you have to uh, get to the bottom of it. And so countries in, in trying to do that, you know, pause the use of the vaccine, sort of an unfortunate decision in the sense that um, the countries that were pausing were some of the countries that have had you know, the most concerning rise in cases as of late um, and every day not vaccinating is a day that people are not being protected. Um, so of course that raised questions about AstraZeneca, perhaps unfairly. The European um, Medicines Agency um, you know, has voiced full support for the vaccine. So as the World Health Organization, both saying that this vaccine is safe and effective and should be used. Um, but then, uh, you know, um, so, but there was worry that that those questions that had sort of been out there would um, taint the use of that vaccine going forward and possibly taint the use of other vaccines. I mean, that's the really tricky thing in this is that people hear questions about any vaccine and may conflate it with all vaccines. Um, so that is, I think, a real worry. Now, the, the AstraZeneca saga continues um, where they submitted... Um, they published some new data in a press release um, showing a, a um, percent efficacy that was then later questioned by a data safety monitoring board group that at, at NIH, which oversees clinical trials, suggesting that they may have used out-of-date data in their press release. Um, nobody at this point, as I'm speaking to you, knows exactly why that may have happened and 
uh, what the motivations for um, putting perhaps not the the most recent data um, in their press release, what, what, why exactly that happened. But nonetheless, it led to another cycle of sort of bad news for the company, which is really, again, quite unfortunate because, uh, you know, people hear the questions and they may not exactly remember what the questions are, but they may remember that there are questions and that may make them less likely to not only receive that vaccine, but possibly, we don't know, possibly other vaccines. And it's really unfortunate because AstraZeneca is one of the vaccines that, um, you know, was going to be heavily used by a number of countries, including many low-income countries because of its cost and its ease of use. Um, so it, it is really unfortunate. As we move into global vaccine distribution, what are some ways that we can mitigate against vaccine nationalism and inequity? Some people have proposed open sourcing the vaccine or even doing away with vaccine patents entirely. Do you think solutions like this are viable? And if not, what other ideas could be proposed? I think they're interesting and we should um, explore them. Again, I think this is a really complicated situation because while we very much have a need to make vaccines more widely available, we also don't want to have a chilling effect on vaccine development. I mean, as it is, vaccines are not really the kinds of things that companies want to make in the sense that they're not nearly as profitable as other uh, pharmaceutical products. So um, we have to be careful. Um, but we have to do something. So we need to come up with some kind of benefits sharing um, agreement that is acceptable by all parties and meets a global health need. Um, but I don't want to just say, well, you know, let's just, who cares about intellectual property? Who cares about all of these things? Um, maybe we don't care, but we need to make sure that that's not going to drive companies away from um, making the vaccines that we need. Right now, there is no alternative. We need these companies. You know, the NIH uh, can do really important work in early vaccine development, and that's part of the reason why we have the Moderna vaccine um, was because of that early stage research. But they stop at a point, and then they have to turn over what they're working on to a company that can not only finish the very expensive clinical trials, um, but also manufacture at scale. And so we can't just you know plow ahead. Um, you know, private companies be damned. I think we need them as full partners in this, and we need to figure out um, exactly what uh, proposals are going to work best. But I do think um, that we need to do something else, and we do need more distributive efforts, and um, we need to figure out how to build that into the um, the development process. All right. Well, that's everything from us today. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us, and we really appreciate all of your answers. Thanks so much. Thanks for this conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.